Hey there, and welcome to Parsha Lab. This is Beth Lesh. I'm a writer here at Aleph Beta. And this is Daniel Lowenstein, also a writer at Aleph Beta. Before we dive in, just a few quick reminders. You guys know the drill. If you haven't already subscribed, make sure you do it right now. Make sure you rate us five stars on the app so that, you know, all your friends and family will be able to find us. And on to the show. Uh, so, Daniel, this week we're talking about Parshas Vayelech. Um, Parshas mm-hmm. Vayelech is all of one chapter in the Torah. It's uh, chapter 31 of the book of Deuteronomy. And let's just cut right to the verses. I want to read through the first few of them with you, and then we'll uh, we'll stop to ask some questions of one another. Sounds good to me. Daniel, can you go ahead and read the first three verses for us? Sure. So it starts off, Vayelech Moshe vaydaber et hadrim el kol Yisrael. Moshe went and spoke all of these words. Not sure what these words refer to. Maybe it's what's going to follow. Maybe it's what happened before. Whatever it is, I'll call Yisrael to all of the children of Israel. Vayomer Alehem, and this is what he said: Ben me'ave shim shana nuchi hayom. I am 120 years old today. Lo uchal od latzid v'lavo, and I'm no longer able to go out and come back. And Hashem has told me that I cannot cross over the Yardin. So it sounds like Moshe is sort of giving his farewell speech. This is the last stop on his journey through the desert. They're on the verge of entering Israel. He's old. He can no longer function as a leader, and he's not allowed to cross the Jordan anyway. Hashem, your God, he is passing before you, meaning he will lead you, so, you know, sort of have no fear. He will destroy all of the nations who are before you, vivishtam, and you will inherit them. Yoshua hu over lefanecha. Yoshua, he will pass before you. That that's interesting. Kasher di Hashem, just as Hashem said. Beth, as I'm reading these, I'm noticing there's a a weird thing here where it says Hashem alokacha hu over lefanecha. And then also Yoshua who over the same language in both of them. Mm-hmm. And that language first appears in verse two, right? That the first person who's described as being over, or in this case Lota Avor, is Moshe himself, right? Moshe is not going to cross over, but God and Yehoshua will cross over. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, I think at the very least, what's going on here is that there is a parallel between verse two and verse three that we're meant to read those three overs as being the same action. There's something that Moshe can't do in terms of his leadership, be it something larger and more metaphorical or something more physical, like actually crossing the Jordan before the people. And then there's something that God and and Yehoshua are going to be able to do for the people in terms of their leadership. Um, that's the parallel that I see set up. Now, the question that I want to ask you is, what it, first of all, what is Moshe trying to do with, the, with, with, with these two statements? Why is he saying this to the people now? What, you know, what are his concerns? What's his goal? Why does he think they need to hear it? I'm 120 years old today. Like, why is he telling us his age? Um, I can no more go out and come in. God has said to me that I'm not going to cross over the Jordan. But God, he's going to cross before you. He's going to destroy the nations. You're going to dispossess them. And Yehoshua, he's going to cross over too. What is Moshe's goal here? What, why is he saying all, all of this? Well, my first instinct is probably that this has something to do with giving the people a sense of security, right? The Moshe was their, uh, their fearless leader that they could always turn to to solve all their problems, even if he got a little angry with them every once in a while about it. But uh, there was a certain level of comfort of knowing that Moshe would sort everything out. And so Moshe has to tell them, like, look, I'm not going to be with you anymore, but don't worry because you've got God, you've got Yoshua. So there's no reason to worry. It's interesting that you say that because I have a theory 
and I hope to develop it over the course of this conversation. But the theory is that in, in, a, in some key way, Moshe doesn't want the people to relate to their new leadership the way that they've been relating to him. Meaning, I don't think he's just looking to say, okay, guys, I'm going out of the picture, but I'm handing you a replacement, and the replacement is going to do for you everything that I've done for you. It's all going to be the same. It's all going to be good. You're in good hands. I don't think that's exactly what he's doing. Right. And maybe if I'm anticipating where you're getting that from, he doesn't lead by saying Yeshua who over lefanacha, but instead he emphasizes that Hashem elokacha who over lefanacha. So that, yeah, that's what I noticed too. And that's part of what I want to talk about. I mean, Moshe says, okay, I'm going to be out of the picture. Fine. I get that. And then he mentions these two different figures that are going to substitute for him. And the two different figures are God and Yehoshua. And what's the difference that you see, Daniel, in, in how these two figures are described? Well, I guess the first thing I notice here that jumps out at me is that Moshe is really emphasizing Hashem way more than he's emphasizing Yeshua, right? All the conquests you're going to have to do, God's going to take care of that, you know, and Yeshua, yeah, he's going to pass before you, but Ka'asher Dibir Hashem, right? Hashem is the one who appointed him. Like even the human leader you're going to have, that's really part of Hashem's leadership too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see the same thing. And in fact, you, you can sort of break down the verse pretty algebraically. You know, if you look at the, what Moshe says about God, what is it that God is going to do for them? So he's going to do two things. Number one, he's going to be over lefanecha. He's going to cross before the people. And number two, he's going to destroy the nations so that we can dispossess them. Now, Yehoshua only gets one qualifier. Yehoshua, the only thing he's going to do is be over before the people, is cross before the people. So it just seems to me that crossing before the people, that's something that a mortal can do. But destroying all of the nations of the land, that's something that only God can do, right? Yehoshua can't really rightly stand up and say, okay, okay, Israel, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure that we win every single military battle. A mortal man can't promise that. Ah, but if God's your leader, all of a sudden that's the kind of thing that you can promise. You know, you, you see where I'm going with this? I think so. Uh, I think another thing that follows from what you're saying is that it's possible Moshe is trying to um, reorient B'nai Yisrael's priorities in a certain way. He's trying to encourage them not to look to human leadership for salvation. I think that's exactly right. And um, that's ultimately what I think is the theme of this Parsha. Let's explore it a little bit further. We'll, we'll ask a couple of questions and see how it all rounds out. And here's, here's one question, the next question that I want to ask you. As you said, this is Moshe's farewell speech. He is about to hand the baton over to his successor. He's telling B'nai Israel, I'm about to disappear from the picture. I'm not going to be your leader anymore. There's going to be a new phase of leadership, and you're going to be in someone else's hands. And Yehoshua is the guy. He's the substitute for me, right? He's the successor. Now, taking a look at what Moshe says about Yehoshua here, it just strikes me that if, if what he means to do is introduce his successor, this seems like a really sort of anticlimactic way to do it. I'll give you a story to illustrate what I mean, and then we can, we can compare the story to what we actually find in the verses, okay? I've never been in charge of a nation before, but I think that Whatever your task, if you are an outgoing leader and you're trying to bring in someone new, you want to talk them up. You want to set them up for success. You want the people to know that they are great to extol all of their positive qualities and make it clear that they have your blessing. I'm thinking about my first job out of college. 
a young 22 working as a community organizer and I was supposed to be meeting with these people who were twice and triple my age and I was supposed to teach them all about how, how they could do their jobs better and how they could organize their communities better. So when my boss introduced me in person by email, whatever it was, he talked about me in these glowing terms, you know, because I needed to earn the respect of the people that I was about to come in and lead. Like, I think people expect that kind of cue when there's an incoming leader. And if you don't get that kind of cue, it sort of makes you wonder, you know, what's what's with this successor? Does he have the chops? Like, what is what does his predecessor think of him? I don't know. So with that frame in mind, what do you make of what Moshe says about his successor in this speech? Yeah, Beth, I always see these emails from companies when they have like a a new CEO or something like that, where they send a whole email explaining the person's background and why they're so excited for them to be joining the team. And it definitely seems like that is not what's going on. He could have said, you know, I'm so excited for you guys to formally induct Yahushua as your leader. He's great. He has tons of experience. He's been with me for 40 years in the desert. He's been my servant. He was one of those guys who went out and spied out the land. And he was one of only two who came back with a good report. You know, he's really outshone everyone in his class. And I think you guys are going to be in great hands. Beth, you know, when you say it like that, it actually makes me wonder if there isn't a very simple answer here, which is that they already knew Yoshua, right? Maybe Moshe didn't need to explain why he, he was a great guy because he was actually pretty famous for being a great guy. He was Moshe's closest student. He had already been a leader in battles. He was one of the few spies who came back and did the right thing. So, you know, maybe Moshe didn't need to say anything more about him other than, oh, Yoshua, you know that guy, right? Yeah, well... Obviously, he's the man for the job. Yeah, you know, Daniel, I think you're right. I think that's one answer. I'm still a little bothered by the question. Like, Moshe at the very least could have said, you know, Yehoshua bin Nun, the guy who you all know, the one who's been my right-hand man, you know, the the steadfast, the talented. He could have had some little mention of, you know, something about Yehoshua's pedigree. But I think what bothers me more is, go ahead and you keep reading, and now take a look at Verse 7. Okay. Moshe Yoshua, Yisrael. Moshe calls to Yoshua and says to him before all of Israel, Chazak ve'ematz, strengthen yourself. Because you are the one who will be leading this nation to the land that God swore to their forefathers. And you will cause them to inherit it. Now, I'll tell you what bothers me about this. Again, we're going back to this picture. You know, the outgoing CEO is about to introduce his successor. And all right, so he doesn't need to talk him up because the guy's been VP for the last 30 years and everyone knows and respects him. But I think to- I think I know what you're going to say here, Beth. It's almost like, you know, he's standing on the podium and pulls up the next guy and he sort of gives him a pat on the back and says, good luck. And then he well, walks off. It's not just good luck. It's more um, genuine than that. It's more earnest than that. It's... um. Don't worry, I know you're nervous, I know you're scared, but I know that you can do this. Is that the kind of introduction that is going to inspire confidence in the new CEO? To, to let on before all of the people that the guy is nervous? It's a good point you're making, especially because this is done very publicly, right? Even if Moshe felt that Yoshua needed a pep talk, he didn't necessarily have to give it to him in front of everyone and like let everyone know that this confidence thing might be an issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think the answer here really comes back to what you started to say at the beginning, which is that it must be that Moshe's primary goal here is not to inspire 
the people's confidence in Yehoshua. Obviously, he wants to set Yehoshua up for success. Obviously, he wants the people to trust in him. But perhaps he's trying to correct for an error, an error that plagued the, the tenure of his entire leadership for 40 years. And that error is that time and time again, people saw him as superhuman. They looked to him to solve their problems and to be the intermediary between them and God. And Mo maybe Moshe is thinking to himself, I don't want to see that in the next generation. The way that the people have been relating to me, there was something problematic about that. And I want in some way to demote the status of leadership in this next generation, to somehow rectify the balance, rectify the triangle between the people, their human leader, and their God in heaven. So Beth, if I understand you correctly, are you suggesting that Moshe was deliberately trying to shake the people's confidence in Yehoshua so that it would be easier for them to lean on God? I'm not going that far, no. I don't think that he was trying to actively undermine Yehoshua, not at all. But I do think that the primary emphasis in this speech and his primary goal, if you'd asked, you know, if you'd asked him, Moshe, at the end of today, you'll be successful if you've done what? And his answer is going to be, if I have inspired the people in, to turn towards God as their primary leader, right? And Yehoshua is going to be an able, capable successor for me. But Yehoshua is not a God, right? And there were times when the people saw me as a God. And, you know, Daniel, I, I think that if you look through earlier parts of B'nai Israel's story in the desert for these past 40 years, as the Chumash describes it, if you look through this lens, you see it coming up over and over again, this idea that the people were really treating Moshe as a God when, when they should have treated him as a human leader. I mean, think back to the story of the man that we get, right? You know, in, in Exodus chapter 16, the people have just left Egypt. They've just sang the song of the sea and all of a sudden they're hungry and they turn to Moshe and Aaron and they say you know we're hungry and Moshe and Aaron basically say to them why are you complaining to me why are you complaining to us we're not God God the all-powerful one the one who just took you out of Egypt he's the one who's going to bring the bread for you you know we're not God it's almost as though B'nai Israel expected Moshe to be the one to deliver the food to them and Moshe had to try to correct that and say that I really have nothing to do with it. Exactly, exactly. And in some ways, you see the greatest example of this in the story of the people's greatest sin in the desert, in, in the story of the golden calf, you know? I mean, there Moshe is, he's up on the top of Mount Sinai, he's gone for all of these days, and the people start to think that maybe their fearless human leader has abandoned them. And what do they say at that point? This is, you know, Exodus chapter 32. What do they say? What's their intention for building this golden calf? I think they say that they want Aaron to make a god for them because Moshe is not there and they don't know what happened to him. Exactly. Which, what you're saying is, is that in order to replace Moshe, they needed to make a god. By extension, that means that they thought, hey, he was a god. Exactly. We thought Moshe was our god, and not just any god, the god that brought us out of Egypt, right? But it turns out Moshe's been gone for all this time. It turns out Moshe's actually not a god. He's just a man. We were wrong. So we need a new god. Aaron, will you make us a new god? You know, that seems to be what's going on. And I don't know, Daniel, what's problematic about that? Why doesn't Moshe want the people to see him as a god? Well, 
I would assume it's because the children of Israel are meant to have a relationship with God. They're supposed to follow his laws faithfully and appreciate what he does for them and recognize that he created the world and all the things that he did. And the more distance you create between yourself and God, the easier it is to forget about him and to forget that, you know, it's not about appeasing your leader or, you know, giving him the right honors uh, you know, there's there's no substitute. There's no way you can circumvent the need to have that relationship and to follow his laws and to let them guide you to, to be the, the kind of people that you're meant to be. I think you really put your finger on it. You know, this whole business of elevating Moshe to the status of God, it's not just an expression of the people's vote of confidence in Moshe. It's a perhaps subconscious expression of their fear to contract with God directly, you know? So they they raise up this intermediary and they say he's the God and he can save us from all of our troubles and then you don't need to talk to God directly. And as you said, God wants a relationship with us. You can't have a relationship with someone that you don't interact with, that you don't talk to. You know, the people have um, put this monkey in the middle between them. And there's something really damning about it. And I think Moshe, looking back over the course of his life, it's like, to a certain extent, even if he kept pushing the people away from him, even if he kept saying, guys, stop talking to me, stop complaining to me, it's God you should be talking to. At a certain point with leaders, I think we get into these patterns that are hard to break. It's hard 20 years through your tenure as the leader of, uh, of Israel in the desert to say, up until this point, guys, you've treated me as a god and, and now it's time to change things. It's hard to shift gears. But the bringing in of a new leader, that kind of leadership transition moment, that's the moment when you can do this. You know, I, this is, I don't know what you're going to make of this example, but I'm thinking back to Back, you know, one of my former jobs, um, I was the director of a, um, a wonderful nonprofit organization. And uh, when I came into the job, my predecessor said to me, look, I've been here for five years and I love this organization, but here are the three things about it that I've been dying to fix. And I haven't been able to fix them because we're stuck in our old ways, but you coming in fresh. So now you can, you can fix them. You can make the meeting start on time. You know, I, I, I lost my capital to be able to do that, but you can. So maybe Moshe sees this as a possibility with Yehoshua, you know, to really correct something that's been itching him about his tenure for a long time. You know, Beth, as I'm hearing you talk about this theory about what Moshe was trying to accomplish by presenting Yehoshua to the people the way he did, my mind can't help but go to Sefer Shoftim, to the book of Judges, and think about how that really all went wrong, how there are a few instances there where the people, you know, are, are being oppressed by the, the foreign nations living among them, and they call for a leader. And, you know, at least towards the beginning of the book, a lot of the leaders insist to them that, you know, uh, you need to follow God. And I'm not really your leader. God is your leader. Uh, and the people say, whatever, just fix the problem for us. And, you know, as soon as the problem is fixed, then they forget about God again. And, you know, it really makes me sad to think that, you know, Moshe may have been trying to stop that. But, you know, it didn't really go anywhere. So, Daniel, I think you're right about, about the book of Judges. I think your diagnosis is spot on there. But let's go earlier in Jewish history. If you look at the book of Joshua, which is the book that follows this farewell speech of, of Moses, how would you say that Moshe did? You know, did, was he successful in setting up Joshua's leadership tenure in a way that was healthy? 
did he strike the right balance based on how you see the people treating Joshua? That's actually a really good point. I don't know why I sort of mentally skipped over that. But yeah, if you think about what happens in the book of Joshua, there really is a, a cohesiveness, a faithfulness, a couple of scares, but really, you know, nothing uh, nothing terrible happens in terms of the children of Israel being faithful to God and, and carrying out his will and doing what they needed to do in the land. And maybe that means that Moshe's strategy worked. Mm, or it worked at least for a generation, right? You know, it, it the inspiration wore off after a while and people returned to their natural instincts and their natural inclinations. But maybe for a while, it really did serve its purpose. I, but I don't know. I don't even know if I agree with what I just said. I mean, is this a natural instinct, do you think, in human nature that people are always going to want to take their leaders around them and elevate them to the status of demigods? Is, is that something is that something you see yourself doing? Is that something that you see happening in Jewish life today? You know, Beth, that's a that's a very sharp and I think a very important question. I don't know if I'm in the position to to diagnose the ills of society today, but I, I do think that you actually find that it, it can be a problem and also its opposite can be a problem too. I think on the one hand, a, a lot of people in the Jewish world sometimes invest a lot of faith in their leaders to a point where it can get problematic, um, to a point where, let's say, if someone's faulted, they're not willing to see it. There have been a lot of really sad stories about people who were, you know, considered great men, and then something came to light, some sort of scandal, and their followers weren't willing to believe it, and even got violent in defending these these people because, you know, probably they just attributed some super elevated status to them and weren't willing to consider that maybe they're human and maybe they're flawed and maybe then these accusations against them are are right. right I'm not right. saying that in every instance they are, you know, because, you know, people who are in the spotlight do also attract a lot of attention and, you know, a lot of uh, false accusations, but sometimes they're not false and sometimes mm, there's proof. Yeah. And you know, it, it's interesting you say that because on the one hand, I want to say oh, God forbid, I'm not one of those people. I'm able to be open-minded about my leaders. And if someone, you know, had good reason to make an accusation against them, I'd be able to see it with wide open eyes and, you know, understand that they're mortal. So I, I, I want to say that. But the truth is, I'm noticing in myself a certain hypocrisy when it comes to this issue. Because I, I, on the one hand, intellectually, I definitely believe that leaders are real people and they're flawed and we should see them that way. And that if we ever intend to, um, to use them as examples that are going to inspire us to, you know, to become like them, we're going to have to see them as mortal. If, you, if your leaders are perfect, you could never compare yourself to them and then they're not useful as a, as a model for emulation. So intellectually, I believe that. But on the ground, when I think about some of the great role models and mentors in my life, obviously, the closer you get to someone, the more you come to know about them, the more you come in touch with their flaws and with their mortality. And there's always something, at least for me, which is uncomfortable about coming in touch with those things. It, it, my experience of it isn't liberating. Woohoo! Now I know that my great teacher, who I respected for so long, is mortal and I, and I can learn to be like her. It's like oh man, there's something there's something lost here. Like there was this picture of perfection that was a beacon in my life and now it's broken. And there's something sad about that. So I, I, I don't know, I'm kind of grappling with those with those two things. Like, can you relate to that at all? So Beth, I, I definitely can relate to it. But actually for me, I think that I sometimes more have the opposite problem. 
sometimes I can be maybe a little bit too suspicious or too resistant to authority uh, and sort of closely guard my independence, you know, and think that if I'm going to relate to God, it's going to be on my own terms and it's going to be in the way that I understand the Torah. And then sometimes that makes me wonder what place mentors have or or teachers have. And I sometimes sort of struggle with that because, you know, what if there's somebody who's a very respected person who I think is a very smart person who says something that I disagree mm-hmm. with, right? You know, how do I how do I find the space to be humble enough to hear someone else's perspective, someone who in all likelihood is wiser than I am, mm-hmm. but at the same time stay faithful to the things that I think that I know? You know, I, I really like the way that you portrayed that, you know, wondering whether or not there is a role at all for role models and mentors in your life. I think that Moshe is speaking to both of us. Uh, He's basically saying, look, guys, there's a balance. On the one hand, I want you to be transacting with God primarily, but there's still a role for a leader. He doesn't take leadership out of the picture altogether. He says, I'm going to have a successor and he is going to go before you and you can go talk to him about your problems and you can look to him as a source of inspiration. You know, um, there's, there's there's that real balance being struck, I think. All right, Daniel, it's time for us to, to wind down our conversation. But, you know, I think that there's a really tantalizing possibility left here at the end for us. And w- what I want to do is charge our listeners with a, an assignment. You know, go through the rest of Parshas Vayelech at your leisure and see if you can see the Parsha through this lens. See if you can't see ways in which the rest of the Parsha is telling this same story. The story of... Us being too reliant on our leaders and needing to wean off, needing to not see them as demigods, and ultimately learning a new way of transacting directly with God, not experiencing God through the filter of Moshe. Please come back and report to us uh, about what you find. I think there's some very fun implications there. And um, and Daniel, thanks for uh, thanks for going back and forth with me. Thank you, Beth. This was amazing. As always, we want to hear from you, so please write in to us info at alephbeta.org. We get those notes. We love reading them. And if you haven't already, it's time to subscribe. It's time to rate us five stars on the app. And it is time to write a heartfelt letter to all of your friends and family telling them how much you enjoy listening to Partial Lab every week. Till the next time. <laughs> <laughs>